Hello, and welcome to the SAMOPS Specialty Spotlight Podcast. This podcast was created to help inform military medical students about experiences and opportunities in military medicine. We aim to interview physicians either currently in or retired from the military, from all branches of service and various specialties. Today, we are fortunate to have Dr. Allen with us. He's an emergency medicine physician, assistant professor at the University of the Incarnate Word School of Osteopathic Medicine, and retired from the United States Air Force, where he spent much of his career supporting Air Force Special Operations. He happens to also be uh, one of the first mentors I had starting a medical school and a fantastic teacher, and I'm glad to share him with the rest of our audience. So Dr. Allen, welcome. Oh, thanks, Brian. Happy to be here. So, uh, like I already mentioned before we even started the podcast, then normally we always start with tell us a little bit about yourself. So just a brief introduction. Where are you from? Medical school, residency, any family you want to talk about? Well, I'm, I'm, my name is Rob Allen. I'm an emergency medicine physician by trade and training. Uh, I'm, uh, <clears throat> I'm originally from California. I was born and raised out there. I'm one of the few native, native natives of Los Angeles, actually. And... Uh, went to uh, college at the uh, University of California at Irvine, uh, majored in uh, chemistry and biological sciences, and uh, worked for several years as an analytical chemist, and then decided I really would be happier going to medical school rather than uh, continuing on being a chemist. And uh, I was accepted into medical school at uh, what uh, was known at the time as COMP, College of Osteopathic Medicine of the Pacific. It's now Western University College of Osteopathic Medicine of the Pacific. I was the second class to graduate in uh, 1983, and if you can do the math, please don't. It's depressing. And uh, and then I went to Pontiac, Michigan to do a rotating internship. I spent a year there in Pontiac, which was an interesting experience for everybody involved because I was a Californian in Michigan for the first time in my life, and uh, they'd never had a Californian on uh, in their intern class before. So that was that was an interesting experience for everyone involved. Um, I went through medical school on an, on an HPSP scholarship uh, through the Air Force. Um, about halfway through my internship year, they sent me stuff saying, what would you like to do? Uh, would you like to be deferred for residency? Would you like to come on active duty? If you do want to come on active duty, would you like to be a flight surgeon? And uh, since my dad had been a bomber crewman in World War II, I was all about being a flight surgeon. So I stuck my hand up at me and said, yes, I want to be a flight surgeon. So I finished my internship. And uh, was sent to uh, San Antonio to uh, the School of Aerospace Medicine at Brooks Air Force Base, which uh, later became Brooks City Base and is now just Brooks. And happens to be where I am still teaching to this day, <laughs> because the uh, West or the uh, University of Carter Words uh, School of Osteopathic Medicine is located at the former Brooks Air Force Base in the former, and in fact, my office is in the former School of Aerospace Medicine building. So the farther you do go, the more you around and come back to where you started. So that's kind of interesting. Uh, after I finished flight surgeon school, I went to Edwards Air Force Base in California as, uh, as a flight surgeon. I spent four years there. Uh, Edwards is a test base, so that's what we did. It was we tested aircraft. And uh, I had an absolute way too much fun at Edwards Air Force Base. Um, we had a little bit. We had one of just about every aircraft in the Air Force inventory, and any of them that had a back seat, I flew in. So uh, I got to uh, fly in F-4s, F-16s, F-15s, and uh, a lot of time in T-38s. And uh, I spent an immense amount of time flying around in the back of a rescue helicopter because we had Det 5 of the 40th Aerospace Rescue and Recovery Squadron. That's how old I am, folks. Uh, was still active there at the time. And uh, 
I got introduced to the, con to the concept of combat rescue. And uh, I worked with the pararescue men or PJs. And uh, I pretty much found my purpose in life right there. Um, going out and dragging people out of bad situations was something I was really fascinated with and found out I was pretty good at it. And also it involved uh, something I was always interested in, which was being outdoors. Um, and I also, while I was at Edwards, found the World Terrorist Medical Society, which was a very young organization at the time. And, and I went ahead and joined, I think my membership number in the WMS is 73 or 74, something like that. And uh, that's pretty much uh, you know, established my career at that point. Uh, I went from Edwards to uh, here to back to San Antonio, where I was at uh, Wilford Hallbrook Army Medical Center, where I did my emergency medicine residency. Uh, this was from 1988 to 1991, and it uh, it was actually even back in those days, it was a combined program between the two uh, between the two hospitals. And so we were two of the three trauma centers in the city. Saw a lot of stuff there. Uh, got excellent residency training there. From there, I went to Andrews Air Force Base for two years as the deputy chairman of the emergency department. And from there, I was recruited into special operations, specifically into special tactics. And I spent uh, the next eight years of my career as the uh, initially as the only physician in special tactics and later as the head physician in special tactics because there was only two of us and I was senior to the other guy. So uh, I spent a lot of time doing that. Uh, by the time I finished eight years in special tactics, I had made 06 and uh FSOC, which was much, much smaller than it is now, really didn't have a place to put me. So they sent me. So they said, well, what are we going to do with you? Well, they sent me back to the School of Aerospace Medicine to teach critical care transport and air medical evacuation. And I basically did that until I retired. I then went to work for the Department of Energy for a year and a half out in Nevada at the Nevada test site doing stuff I'm not allowed to talk about. And um, from there, I came back here figuring I'd uh, back to San Antonio, I figured I'd uh, start working in the emergency department full-time again. And instead, I ended up as a contractor at the School of Aerospace Medicine yet again. And I was there until 2011 when it, uh, when it closed down and they closed the base and moved the School of Aerospace Medicine up to Wright-Patterson. So every time I turn around, I, I, keep coming, I kept coming back to San Antonio. So I figured the fates have decided I'm going to live here for the rest of my life. And then when uh, UIW opened the School of, Aer uh, School of Osteopathic Medicine at, uh, at Brooks, it was like, yep, the fates have decreed I'm going to spend the rest of my life in this building, and I'm probably going to be carried out of it feet first. So that, in a nutshell, is the insanity I've done for my career. And uh, the question multiple people have asked over the years is, would you do it again? And, uh, oh, yeah, without a doubt, I'd do it again. It was that much fun. So, wow, we have uh, a lot of years to unpack there and a lot of questions uh, that I definitely need to ask along that timeline that you just share with me. So I think that the first thing I want to backtrack to is, so did you do a civilian residency? Did I hear that? Or excuse me, a civilian internship? Did I hear yes, that I right? Did. Yes, it, I did. Was that I, the only option for you or was that uh, kind of a choice? Well, it wasn't really a choice. Uh, I didn't uh, one of the one of the huge mistakes I made as a youngster is I didn't really get to know the HPSB system the way I should have. Uh, I didn't know how the uh, select, how the uh, residency selection program worked or anything along those lines. I thought you just, okay, you, you 
you know, you, you go do your officer training, you do your, um, do a couple of clinical rotations and then put in for a residency. And if they want you, they'll take you. Well, I didn't do it very strategically. I actually only did one, um, one uh, program or one uh, clinical rotation at, at a major Air Force facility. And that was at uh, Wilford Hall in anesthesiology. And uh, that worked out very well because I was the only student on the service at the time. And so I just had an absolute blast. I did a lot of, a lot of procedures. I did a lot of uh, critical care stuff, which turned out I was very good at and really enjoyed. But uh, it also became pretty obvious uh, that it was not something I really wanted to spend the rest of my career doing. So sorry about that, Brian, but it just wasn't for me. <laughs> and uh, so <clears throat> I really did not know how the program worked. And so I applied. And this was at a time when the military match took place after the civilian match. And that did not work out well for everybody concerned because the uh, if you uh, matched in the civilian program and then you matched in a military program, you had to go to the military program. So hospitals that were counting on you showing up would suddenly be realize, oh, wait a minute, we're, um, we're, um, we're um, you know, an intern short. So basically, if you were, in the, if you were an HPSP program uh, student, a lot of hospitals wouldn't even look at you twice. And uh, that was not a good situation for everyone involved. Now that the military match takes place substantially before the civilian match, that's not a problem anymore. But again, this is something I didn't know at the time. And uh, it... Uh, you know, basically, uh, I put in for, uh, I didn't worry about putting into for civilian programs. I only put in for military programs. I did not get picked up because I hadn't gone and rotated at the hospitals where I had applied to go and in the areas that I wanted to go to. And so I didn't get picked up. And so basically, I ended up scrambling uh, to, get a, to get an internship. Uh, the, inter the hospital where I did my internship knew this sort of thing was happening. And they actually had reserved several of their intern slots for people who had been military match and didn't match because they knew that they would get some good residents, they'd get some good interns and residents out of it. So that's how I ended up in Pontiac, Michigan and uh, had the interesting um, experiences I did there. Oh, wow, man, that's, I can't, having just gone through all of that, um, I can't yep. imagine the stress of, trying to scramble your way into something and hoping that people had available spots. I, my palms get sweaty just thinking about that. <laughs> it, it was one of the worst weeks of my life, actually. <laughs> I so. can imagine. So you decided to do a flight surgeon after you finished your intern year. Was that, so you decided you weren't entirely sure what specialty you wanted to do at that time, or you just, that was a part of the bucket list and you really needed to go do flight surgery? A little bit of both. Uh, I really wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do in terms of uh, specialization. Did I want to do family practice because I, I enjoyed family practice and I thought it was kind of fun. Uh, I enjoyed emergency medicine. I also enjoyed neurology, interestingly enough. And, you know, the problem was I, st I actually went to medical school to do forensic pathology. Uh, that's what I was, my intention was. And unfortunately, I found out in my second year of medical school, I'm violently allergic to formaldehyde, which means, uh, guess what? You're never going to be a pathologist. And uh, to this day, if I go into the, uh, into the anatomy lab at, at the school, I have to wear a full face respirator because otherwise I break out in hives. So, um, 
That's funny you mentioned that. I I don't really remember you much uh, in the anatomy lab. (laughs) I never, I hardly ever go in there for a darn reason because I have to load up on antihistamines, wear a full face mask, and uh, hope I don't break out in hives and itch itch all over the place. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So that kind of ruined all your plans for forensic pathology then. Um, I mean, and that would, that fits really well with somebody that was uh, previously an analytical chemist. So (laughs) yeah, Mm -hmm. I would, I would almost expect as much. Yeah, I uh, I was an, I was uh, an analytical chemist, and I'd done work in uh, in forensic uh, chemistry, and I really enjoyed it, and I really enjoyed the forensic pathologists that I had had contact with, and uh, so it was one of these things where I could combine my the my my scientific uh, uh, skills and knowledge with uh, medical skills and knowledge, and that would be really cool and interesting and fascinating, and uh, yeah, it turned out it just wasn't going to happen, so I. Kind of was a loss. Loss. I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do, and um, so I figured uh, since at the time the Air Force, uh, uh, if you were going to be a general medical officer, which is you know basically a, a year of internship, and that was it, uh, they wanted you to do flight medicine if you were qualified for it and wanted to do it. And since my dad had been a bomber crew in World War II and was an airplane nut, I grew up as an airplane nut. My brother has a, has a degree in aeronautical engineering, this sort of thing. Uh, I decided, yeah, I'd, I'd really like to do this as a flight surgeon. And uh, I got to flight surgeon school, had an absolute wonderful, wonderful time at flight surgeon school, and got to Edwards Air Force Base. And I was on base for probably less than a week. I'd, I'd been in there for less than a week. And uh, late late in the, after, in the afternoon, uh, we got a call from test ops saying, uh, hey, we got an open back seat in an F-4. Anybody want to go fly? And uh, my boss looked at me and says, hey, Rob, you want to go fly an airplane? It's like, um, okay. Whenever your boss asks you if you want to do something, you usually should say, oh, yeah, I'd love to do that. And so, and, you know, I said, oh, sure, I'd love to go do that. Next thing I know, I'm being crammed into the back of, a, um, into the back of an F-4, <laughs> which I had seen from a distance but never actually gotten into. And it's like, okay, well, um, <clears throat> and the guy's briefing me saying, okay, don't touch the yellow handles until I, unless I tell you to. I tell you to touch the yellow handles, grab them and pull them real hard. That was pretty much my briefing on how to get out of the thing in case we were in trouble. And uh, we took off and I zipped around for about 45 minutes in the back of an F4, managed to keep my lunch where it belonged. And I climbed out of that airplane going, this is the coolest thing I've ever done in my life. I need to do this this a lot more. So um, I spent a lot of time whenever I could get away from my uh, clinical duties, I was out flying. And uh, it turned out that the, the flying was, was an immense amount of fun, and flying supersonic is, is actually cooler than it sounds. It was really cool to be flying around supersonic. But what really uh, made a difference for me was flying with the rescue detachment, because in the back of a rescue helicopter, I wasn't 160 pounds worth of jettisonable baggage. I was, uh, I was a crewman. I was there for a reason, and I had a job. And the first rescue mission I went on, where we actually pulled somebody out of the, uh, out of the we, we were responsible. We, we did search and rescue for the Southern Sierra. It's when we were called and asked to by civilian authorities. And we flew out one time and picked up a uh, hunter who had been stuck at the, um, an area called Jackass Springs, right outside, right in the Panamint Mountains. And basically, we saved his life. And when we picked this guy up and got him in the helicopter and looking across the, uh, the Stokes litter to the power rescue and he's got this look on his face and he turns to me and says, we just got to save doc. And it was like, 
yeah, I want to do this the rest of my life. This is the most, this is the biggest thrill I've ever had in my life. So yeah, it's, it, that uh, pretty much decided me that uh, whatever it took to be the world's best rescue doc, that's what I wanted to do. And emergency medicine was a good fit. I would imagine so. So I, so I was going to say, or my next follow-up question was going to be, what is probably the best experience you had as a flight surgeon? So I'm guessing it's either flying in the back of really fast aircraft or uh, the experience you just told us about. But just in case it's not, um, what would you say is your best experience? What, what would you say is your worst experience as a flight surgeon? And then I think I would really like to follow it up at the end with maybe what some advice you would give to somebody who's being assigned orders to be a flight surgeon. Oh boy. The best experiences flight surgeon. There were so many of them. Um, I got to practice. Uh, I managed to maintain my flight medicine, flight surgeon qualifications, my entire career, you know, even, work, even when, uh, when I was working in special operations, I was still, I was still designated as a flight surgeon. I still flew. Uh, I still, uh, did a lot of uh, interesting stuff there. I, you know, went, I got sent to dive to the, to the Navy Dive Medical uh, Training uh, Center down there at uh, Panama City, which was just terrible. I was really rough. They sent me to Panama City, Florida, in August to do learn how to be a Navy di- Navy Dive Medical Officer. It was it was very rough work, but somebody had to do it, and uh, that was fun. But uh, the most fun experience I had, oof. Oh, there were so many. Um, I think um, probably one of the, probably the best experience I ever had was we, we had flown a, re- a rescue mission and we were coming back and uh, it had been a fairly rough mission and um, you know, there were, it was turned out to be a lot more dangerous than it should have. And as we were flying back, uh, we had refueled and we're heading back head, heading back home. And, the sun, it was after dark, the sun was down, the moon was coming up. It was an absolutely gorgeous night. And the aircraft commander happened to also be the de- detachment commander. And he came up on the intercom and said, Doc, I am so glad you were able to fly with us today because we love flying with you. And I just realized then, like, <laughs> that's one of the best feelings you can ever have is that uh, your crew not only tolerates you they accepted you and they wanted you to be there and that that's a great experience that's a great that's a wonderful feeling the uh, worst things you can have as a flight surgeon losing pilots losing crews and uh, i have i've had that happen and looking back on it everyone that i can i can still see the faces of some of the guys that i that i that i knew that went in and when that happens, it's a very bad day for everyone involved. And unfortunately, military aviation is inherently dangerous. And if you do flight medicine, you're going to, some of the people you know are going to get hurt. And some of them are going to die. And that's also true in special operations. Um, you know, some of the folks that I've, uh, I've worked with over the years, you know, did not survive some of the, uh, some of the missions we were sent on. And uh, such like that, and that's very hard. It's hard to deal with. And you know, I tell people that ninety-five percent of the time, being flight surgeon is the best job you can possibly have, and five percent of the time, it's the worst you can possibly have. And uh, <laughs> yeah, that that can be the worst. The five percent where you go. And the other thing, I've I've had to do five safety investigation boards, and all five involved fatalities. 
And those are absolutely no fun at all because as the medical person on the board, you're responsible for all life science stuff. It's great. You learn an immense amount about the aircraft and such like this, but at the same time, you're trying to figure out exactly what went wrong to make sure it doesn't happen again. And of course, that is the purpose of doing a safety board is to try to figure out what the probable cause was and try to make sure try to come up with ways to make sure it doesn't happen again. Would that be pretty similar to root cause analysis? Yeah, very much similar. It's pretty much the same type of thing. There's very rarely a single thing that causes an aircraft mishap. It's usually a chain of events. And if any one of those particular chain of events did not occur, the the mishap wouldn't have occurred. And uh, so trying to winkle out what happened, exactly what happened. And the first one I was, I was on, basically when we got to the location, the only thing we had was the, uh, the body of the pilot. The pilot had ejected, but did not survive the ejection. And, um, and a, a very, and a radar trace, and that was it. We had nothing further. And uh, we ended up having to recover the, what was left of his F-16 off the bottom of the Gulf of Mexico out of 305 feet of water, which was uh, an experience in and of itself. Hard to imagine. So kind of moving on from that, what, what advice would you give to those who, uh, you know, they, they, they finished their intern year, they, they got this um, assignment now. now, now they're being told they're going to go to flight surgeon school and then they're going to be assigned to be um, um, a flight surgeon. What, what advice would you give these individuals? First and foremost, get involved with the mission of the unit you're assigned to. Um, you know, whether you're assigned to a transport squadron, whether you're assigned to, uh, you know, an attack squadron, whatever, it doesn't really matter. Get involved with the mission, learn the aircraft, uh, learn the, learn the equipment, um, become very, very familiar with, um, the requirements of the mission. Um, because the people who are, who you're responsible for the, the pilots, the air crews and things like this, uh, they love what they do. They wouldn't be doing it if they, if they didn't really enjoy it. And they like sharing it with people. But um, you have to remember that you, as their physician, you have kind of the ultimate power over them. If you say the wrong thing, if you write the wrong thing down in the record and such, you can end someone's career. And they know that. And they're very nervous when they come to see you. So developing the trust of your, um, trust by, of your, of your crews is critical. So learning their, learning their jobs, learning what they do, learning what's interesting and unique about it. One of my best friends to this day uh, was a fellow I met. Uh, one of the things we did at Edwards is we had the Air Force Test Pilot School there. And a, uh, <clears throat> we always assigned one flight surgeon to each, each test pilot class to kind of be their liaison. And they would go on the uh, field trip with them during the year and such like that. I was assigned to test pilot school class 85A. And I got to know these guys very, very well. And it was all men back in those days. And I got to know them very, very well. Uh, one of them was a guy by the name of Randy Kelly, who to this day is one of the best friends that I have. He's my daughter's godfather. That's how much I think of him. And um, this sort of thing. And Randy was a flight test navigator. He was originally a navigator on B-52, electronic warfare guy. And I was flying, you know, I had an opportunity to fly around in a B-52 with him. And Randy was sitting there showing me all the stuff that he does. And I was feeling pretty sick because we were down in the black hole of a B-52 and we were bouncing around and, you know, it's not a very comfortable ride. And 
and said, you know, um, how can you do this and not get air sick? And, and Randy looked at me and says, it's not a question of if you get sick in, in this thing or not. It's a question of can you do your job while you're sick? Because you will be. I was like, okay. Uh, yeah, now I understand that a little bit. But I also learned how to jam, uh, jam radar frequencies. Yeah, not, I, so, not, not something you need for your average, you know, your average doctor doesn't get to learn things like that. No, but yeah, but that's kind of like the benefit or the unique opportunities that come with being in the military, you know, they, getting the opportunity to learn things you otherwise wouldn't learn and do things you wouldn't otherwise do. Absolutely. I mean, you know, where else can you climb into a, into a tank and have somebody talk you through, this is how we uh, use the range finders and this is how we do it. And this is how, this is what fires the gun. You know, that's just incredibly cool. Mm -hmm. And it's cool for you as a physician learning how to, you know, how to do this because you know you're never going to have to do this for real, hopefully. But hopefully. it's also cool for the guys who are teaching it to you because, hey, you know, the doc was in our tank yesterday and I showed him how to use this stuff and he was just really, really thrilled by it. So it's a thrill for them as well. So I, not to switch gears too hard, but I am interested in uh, talking a little bit with you about um, uh, not necessarily just your special operations time, but also wilderness medicine. Um, mm -hmm. I know that's something a lot of people that are interested in emergency medicine tend to also be interested in wilderness medicine. Um, and to that same end, I do believe when we talked to, at some point, you were involved in some of the authoring of the TCCC uh, guidelines, things like that. I was hoping maybe we could... Yep chat a little bit about that your experience with it and how that came to be well as a, i was at uh, i was at uh, the 24th special tactics squadron and uh, a navy doctor showed up one time and wanted to brief um, some of the medical people about uh, some protocols that he'd come up with and i got uh, dragged into this meeting and i sat down and listened to this stuff and listened to this guy talk about it and as i'm looking at this guy's uniform uh, yeah he's a doctor and all this kind of stuff but he's wearing a a seal emblem. He's got the seal Budweiser on. So at the end of the, uh, the session, I said, uh, you're wearing a seal emblem there. And he goes, oh yeah, I was a seal, seal line officer before I went to medical school. And that's how I met Frank Butler. And uh, Frank was uh, basically, he was giving us a briefing on the paper that he and John Hagman and actually Frank's brother uh, had written that became the basis of uh, tactical combat casualty care. And uh, he was briefing us on before publication of what, he, what they had come up with. And I looked at, and I, he asked me, he actually gave me a pre-publication copy of the paper and said, could you please read this and tell me what you think? Because you're an emergency physician. I, I, I like your input. And I read it and I sent it back to him with a few comments, not very many, but basically saying, this is freaking brilliant. We need to be teaching this to our, to our combat medics. And a few years later, uh, I got another, you know, Frank and I became pretty decent, good, pretty good friends at that point. And a few years later, um, you know, I, I helped bring Frank into, uh, into the Wilderness Medical Society and he eventually became one of the officers as well. As I had been one of the officers as well. I was the, uh, I was on the board of directors for about three or four years, right around 1999, 2000 timeframe. And, um, <clears throat> when they started the, uh, uh, Special Operations Committee on Tactical Combat Casualty Care. I was one of the uh, charter members of it. And so I served on that for um, about five years until I retired. And so I was involved with uh, setting up some of the original um, protocols and uh, evaluating new ones. And um, 
part of the part of the things that I did when I was in when I was in special operations is I wrote something called the Special Tactics Medication and Procedure Handbook, which was the basically the um, the um, handbook, medical handbook, medical medical guidelines, medical protocols for the pararescue men assigned to special operations. They were all assigned to special tactics squadrons. That um, very quickly turned into the pararescue medication and procedure handbook when uh, several of the doctors who were in the Air Force Reserve and the guard came up, popped up and said, this is wonderful stuff. We'd like to have this for everybody. So it became the pararescue medication procedure handbook. I wrote the first three editions of that along with uh, one of my partners, uh, a PA by the name of uh, John McAtee, who unfortunately um, died last year. And um, that's still being published to this day. In fact, one of my uh, one of the students at uh, at UIW right now is a pararescue um, in the reserves, and he gave me a copy of the most recent version, and I showed him the original version. <laughs> the current version is about three times bigger and a heck of a lot better because we've had twenty years to make it better, and it's uh, that's one of my proudest achievements right there. Uh, we started that, and it's still still going to this day, and it's saving people's lives, and that's that's a wonderful feeling. Going to say now they've been uh, spending a lot of time talking about prolonged field care, uh, talking about the the big three and near peer conflicts and how those are adjusting those protocols. Or uh, really, we're talking about getting away from T triple. Well, not getting away from it in its implementation, but the idea that T triple C is only the start, but that prolonged field care is the next thing we're trying to develop because the reality is is. We're not going to have the air superiority we were used to um, doing coin operations. So there's a lot of big talk about that. And I know they just published updated guidelines on PFC yep. as well. And so. this is that's really the wonderful part about it is that when we put together the committee, it was with the express, express purpose of looking at what was going on and what could you know when projecting into the future as to what was going to be happening and making modifications, not based on what happened yesterday, but what happened yesterday, what's happening today, what could be happening tomorrow. And that's why the committee was put together as it was with input from operators as well as uh, from physicians. And we brought in experts if we needed them and such like that. And uh, most of the, most of the doctors who were involved with this were involved with, uh, with directly with special operations or had been direct, directly involved in it. We had a lot of input from the operators themselves. And the whole idea was try to make this thing a whole lot better now than it was in the past and look into the future and see what we would need in the future. So the fact that they're doing it is an absolutely wonderful thing because that's what we that's what we wanted when we started it. It's, it's actually kind of amazing to, to hear that because I've been hearing about TCCC since I was a corpsman, which is funny because... <laughs> I, I joined the Navy and uh, became a corpsman in, what, 2009? And mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, that's quite a long time after you were initially involved that's, in all of this. That's three stuff. years after I retired. <laughs> yes, exactly. No. So uh, a very big difference. So it's, it's kind of interesting to see this timeline of changes and whatnot. So kind of in that same realm, um, I already mentioned, you know, when, when I introduced you that you're one of the first mentors for me in medical school. Uh, but when you when you serve in the military and you wear the officer's uniform, you wear an officer rank, you are inherently a leader by expectation in the military. And um, we also, once we even become an intern, we go from 
you know, the second lieutenant in medical school to the O3 captain. And that is, that's a huge jump. Whereas in most places in the military or outside of medicine, you know, a captain, it, somebody looks at a captain and says, oh, this guy knows what he's doing. Right. Yeah, and, and so that's very, very different for us. And <laughs> I do. And, yeah. People look at medical corps captains and uh, medical or, or medical corps O3s and go, okay, this guy is the equivalent of a second lieutenant in medical corps. So, you know, mm -hmm. yeah. look out for them, make sure they don't get tangled up in their, in their white coats and stuff like that. Right. And, uh, so but, my, my question to you is, is how do you develop leadership when you already have an expectation of a far higher level based upon your rank? And then you're supposed to balance this world of being a trainee, but also being that expert to the non-medical people. How do you, um, what advice do you give somebody about being a leader in that particular type of situation? Probably the most important thing to remember is lead people the way you personally would like to be led, you know, do unto others as uh, others would, do, you would have others do unto you. Um, remember that, um, you never give an order that uh, you know won't be carried out. Um, you never um, you never make jokes about busting people um, or anything along those lines. You never, for example, as an Air Force flight surgeon, first lesson I learned from a, from an older from a flight surgeon who was much older than I was is that you never make jokes about grounding people because it's not funny because you can do that, and so you, you learn not to do things along that nature. You also need to remember that your troops are usually very well trained and very proud of what they do, and they want to do the best possible job. And so you need to help them do that. And that's what a leader does. He helps the he helps their subordinates do their job and do it well, and um, and have fun while they're doing it. But you also have to remember that the mission absolutely positively has to come first. Uh, the mission comes first, uh, your troops come second, and you come third. How would you relate that to, say, training medics, especially junior medics, and how you would potentially take them under your wing? Understand what they need to do, be willing to get down into the gunk and help them with it. You know, it's it's one thing to uh, you know have your medics say, well, you know, uh, the guy, I, I had a real, real difficulty getting this guy's blood pressure. Well, why? Because he's really, really big and the machine wasn't taking the blood pressure properly. Well, did you take a manual blood pressure? Yeah, but I couldn't hear it very well. Okay, help them, help them learn how to do that a little bit better. Don't just say, well, okay, you didn't do it right. I guess I'll take it over because you didn't do it right. No, show them. Show them how to, how to take a better blood pressure. Or if you can't, or if you can't get the blood pressure either, Come up with something, uh, you know, comparable. Maybe you know, palp do the blood pressure by palpation or something along those lines. Um, but don't just uh, don't bust your people for doing their best and trying. Um, and always, always, always remember that as as physicians, we have to be educators. We have to educate our patients. We have to educate uh, our colleagues. You know that sort of thing, and uh, that's that's critical. You know, you have to remember that. Um, when it comes right down to it, even in the, in the military, we end up working for the line, eventually working for line officers. They don't really understand medicine. So it's our job to make sure they understand that when we tell them, when we give them advice about, you know, make sure that the guys are carrying at least three liters of water. 
Okay, well, that's that's you know three kilograms of stuff that, the, that these guys are carrying, and um, you know that could be three kilograms of ammunition. And if you're a line trooper, maybe that's a lot more important than three liters of water. So you have to explain to the uh, to the commander this is why these guys need at least three liters of water because we're going into a place where there won't be any clean water, and the water is going to have to be purified. It'll take several hours to purify the water. So they need to have something to drink while they're waiting for the purification tablets to work or something along those lines. And so, you know, basically remember that we educate, that we're there to educate people and as, especially as training physicians, we're there to be educated ourselves. So help your troops learn their, their job, but also learn from them, especially if you're end up assigned to a line unit and you have, um, you have medics working for you, combat medics working for you. Um, you know, make sure you learn from them because they know the field a lot better than you do. Uh, I was very fortunate uh, when, when I started working with uh, the DJs from the Debt Five. Uh, they basically said, you know, I said, Doc, you want to be one of us? You know, this is the stuff we do. Uh, you know, we, we'll, get, we'll call each other up at nine o'clock at night and we'll go out and do a, a six mile hike through the desert at uh, between you know, nine o'clock and, uh, and midnight. Like, you want to come along? Okay, sure. So I would, you know, I'd get a call every once in a while. I get my stuff on, meet them at a particular location, and we do a night navigation march through the through the open desert. Which sounds pretty weird, but it was an immense amount of fun, <laughs> especially when we we're trying to be as quiet as possible about it and not be seen. You know? There's a certain amount of trust in them, and that they know what they're doing to keep you alive as well. In the meantime, well, that that was the whole thing. Um, when I was at the two four squadron. Um, one of the lead PJs was a guy by the name of Ron Taylor. And Ron basically took me under his wing. He was a master sergeant. He took me under his wing and uh, basically says, okay, doc, you know, if, you're, if we're in a bad situation and we need you up forward, are you willing to go there? I said, absolutely. He says, okay, I will teach you to make, I will teach you what you need to know to make sure you won't be a danger to us, that you'll be a, you'll be a help to us, not a hindrance to us up there. And uh, I'll also guarantee you, we're not, you know, we're not going to let you get hurt. We will, we'll, we will protect you. And, um, yeah, he did that and did that extremely well. And, um, boy, I hate bringing up his, his name because, uh, unfortunately, uh, Ron retired from the Air Force, became a physician assistant to PA, and was brilliant at it. And, um, unfortunately, he died of uh, pulmonary embolism about two years ago. So, absent friends there. That's unfortunate. Um, Last question for you, sir, before we wrap this interview up. Um, the one big parting word of wisdom that you would give across all medical students that are HPSB, whether they be going Army, Air Force, Navy, um, and all the aspirations they have, regardless of specialty, what is the biggest piece of advice you can give us? Oh, wow. I know I gave you uh, a challenge right there at the end. <laughs> yeah. Learn your mission, know your mission, and know your place in the mission. And uh, understand that leadership usually involves hiring the right people, giving them a vector, and getting out of their way. Being a force multiplier rather than a person that uh, takes up space. Exactly. If, if, you know, if you know you've succeeded as an operational doc, when the guys turn to you and say, Doc, we want you on this mission, 
we want you to go on this mission. Now that's the that's a huge that's the largest compliment that any line uh, any line group can say to a position. We want you to come with us. It means what? First off, we need you. Secondly, we trust you to come with us. That's always the goal. <laughs> well, I appreciate it, Dr. Allen. It's been awesome talking to you and doing this interview. I'm sure everybody's going to be really interested in um, listening to this episode, and I'll be sure to let you know uh, as soon as it comes out. Okay. Pleasure talking oh, to you. Absolutely, sir. So that wraps up our episode with Dr. Allen today. Thank you so much for your time and sharing experiences with us future military physicians. For those of you listening, if you have any recommendations for the podcast or anything you'd like to hear in particular, feel free to email samopseducationchair at gmail.com. Thanks for tuning in.